G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for the latest edition of the Cricket Library podcast and today we have a very special treat for you. Joining us on the program is Queensland wicketkeeping legend Chris Hartley. There's a chance down leg side, I think it was off the face of the bat, it is. Good catch by Hartley, Sangakar has gone, always unlucky in a way to go like that down the leg side but he did get a fair bit of it. A fine gloveman who represented Queensland with distinction in a hundred consecutive Sheffield Shield matches. To Hartley, who drives gloriously through cover for four, and that's the 50 for Chris Hartley. And what a way to bring it up. A glorious stroke flowing elegantly through cover. Today, we will hear about his love of the game and how it drove him to be one of the best in the business a multiple title winner at Queensland, a big bash champion at the Brisbane Heat and Sydney Thunder. Today we hear the Chris Hartley story on the Cricket Library podcast. It's a very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. Chris Hartley, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have someone with the experience that you've had at first-class level playing a magnitude of games for the Queensland Bulls, also having some time in the Big Bash with the Heat and the Thunder. But everyone's journey starts somewhere and I'd, I'd love for you to share with our listeners where your cricketing journey began and where the fire was lit for Chris Hartley. Yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, in my family, there's no um, obvious uh, cricket background, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, my father was from Victoria and uh, was, was a, a good AFL player, so there was certainly sport in the background. My mum was from country Victoria and was also quite sporting. So as a kid growing up, it was all about, um, you know, getting outside and, and getting active and, and trying as many different sports as possible. And, um in, in terms of cricket, I, I remember a photo in one of the albums um, where I, I mustn't be much more than three or four years old and I'm carrying one of those plastic cricket bats at, at a park. So obviously somewhere along the way there was a, uh, you know, one of those kids' kids presents that, um, you know, I mucked around with. But um, I think probably um, where it really kick-started for me was, um, uh, it was just before I was probably about... Um, must have been about six or seven. I guess it was around about the age where his mum and dad were probably thinking it could be time for me to go and go down to a local club. And um, where I lived in the western suburbs of Brisbane, we didn't have much of a, a backyard or, or even a, a yard at all. And there was sort of about a, a small strip at the front of our house at the top of the hill that we lived on um, that had a brick wall. And I, I basically um, had enough room to, to be able to throw the, a tennis ball against the brick wall and um, you know, catches it deflected off, you know, a part of the garden or um, a brick or whatever it might have been that was just sort of, you know, ill placed. Um, so for me, it wasn't so much about, you know, bowling down a pitch or or whatever or facing, you know, brothers or anything in the, in the backyard. It was throwing a cricket ball against or a tennis ball against the brick wall. And um, my, one of my most vivid childhood memories with, with regards to cricket was, was Mum, mum always had a rule was that if the tennis ball went on the road, um, you know, obviously I wasn't to just chase it straight onto the road. Yeah. And I missed one one day and uh, went to went to you know chase after it before it went down the hill, which was also pretty good motivation not to miss the ball. 
Um, but a blue Pajero came around the corner and suddenly came down the street. And, um, you know, so obviously I, uh, I wasn't able to chase it, but um, this car sort of kept going and um, went down the street. And then about oh, probably half an hour later, I'd, I'd retrieved the ball and, you know, was back flying. And the same Pajero came back up the street. Um, and usually the rule was, you know, if there was a car pretty close, I'd just grab the ball and stop. But um, the Pajero stopped and uh, the, the windscreen or the driver's side window, um, sorry, uh, you know, wound down yeah. um, as it would have been in those days. And um, all of a sudden I saw the uh, the smiling face of the then Australian test crew, Captain Alan Border. Oh, um, the great man. <laughs> he's the great, yeah, absolutely. And he's given me the thumbs up, obviously, acknowledging a, a young kid having a good time playing some cricket and uh, – it turned out that his parents lived at the bottom of our street and uh, he'd been visiting them. But, um, yeah, it was um, – mum reckons that I came absolutely flying in, inside and I was floating. I was that excited that <laughs> I'd just seen me uh, – just seen my, you know, probably one of my biggest heroes as a kid, you know, drive past and give me the big thumbs up. So I know for me that was absolutely where this sort of passion and, and uh, I guess – um, idea that um, these you know these heroes that were on TV actually were, were real people as well, but it was a, a really strong childhood memory for me. Oh, absolutely, Alan Border stopping by. <laughs> that's that's got to be one you remember yeah. forever. Now, um, t- we had Tim Ludeman on the show last year, and he mentioned uh, Santa Claus actually inspired his love of wicket keeping when he had a, a a pair of wicket keeping gloves under the Christmas tree. It sounds like you were doing a fair bit of catching back at that young age then. When when did you start uh, realising that wicket-keeping was going to be for you? Um, I think um, it's funny. With, um, with those those early, you know, um, you know well, I call it backyard, but those games at home, um, it actually is funny. My, my, um, my old man had bought a car um, privately and... and we found a pair of old driving gloves in, in the uh, in the in the console. So I had these um, these funny old leather gloves that I think they had fur inside them. Even they were they were that old, but they were these leather brown leather gloves. So they they were my first wicket keeping gloves in the in the backyard. But um, pretty much from from the get go, when I went and joined a local uh, local cricket club, my first club was under ten side and. Um, I remember going down for the, I think there was a couple of weekends of, um, you know, trials and that sort of stuff. And, and I just naturally, you know, they said, is there any wicket keepers here? And I put my hand up because I'd, I'd sort of been doing it, um, you know, when I was mucking around at home. Um, and I think it was just, I was, you know, I was a very active kid, so I always wanted to be involved. And um, just I figured, you know, you, you're going to get the ball a lot when you're, you know, when you're the wicket keeper. So, um you know, it meant that I didn't have to wait around in the field to get my hands on it. But yeah, I think from those early days, um, you know, I was always always keen to be behind the stump. So I, I think in those days with junior cricket, you sort of there was a bit of a rotation. So I'd always bowl the bowl the last couple of overs, and, and there was some pretty um, I probably wasn't the worst leg spin for an under ten, <laughs> but uh, certainly wasn't um, certainly wasn't enough there for me to uh, you know want to pursue that. But I think just the idea of being involved in the game and and um, you know, just the fact that, you know, you're constantly needing to be in the game and, and be part of it, that really excited me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And you move into representative pathways with Queensland. Can you tell us a bit about that journey of of being the club cricketer 
to starting to get noticed and then moving into those junior representative teams with Queensland and Australia? Yeah, well, I, I, I probably in the end followed a pretty um, a bit of a blueprint, I suppose, for, for representative um, cricket with junior juniors junior pathways in Queensland at the time. Uh, you know, from sort of under thirteen through to, to under seventeen, there was um, you know state championships, and, and I was always involved in those. Uh, and then I think um, there was also at the time the Queensland Cricket um, had a Queensland Emerging Players Program. Um, so it wasn't so much a representative side as it was a squad that they picked for each of the age groups through under 13s to under 15. And, and basically it was a squad that would get together and train on a regular basis. And um, it was a chance, I suppose, for them to keep an eye on the young talent coming through, but a good opportunity for the, for the more talented youngsters across the state to come together and to, um, you know, to start to, to understand what it is to, to become a um, more of an elite cricketer. And, and that particular program was a, a big thing in Queensland that led to the Queensland under-17 uh, youth side and the Queensland under-19 youth side. And um, So after I'd been in that Queensland Emerging Players program, I, I was in the Queensland under-17 side for one season when I was uh, 14 or 15 uh, and then played in the Queensland under-19 side for three years as well. So um, a lot of that youth cricket, I tended to, to play play up a year or two. Um, obviously, yeah. I wasn't the, the biggest fella, but, um, you know, I was fortunate that, you know, for whatever reason, I was able to um, to actually play with guys a bit older than me quite often, which I think is a really important thing for, for stretching young players with talent. I know that that's something Greg Chappell always talks about. Certainly, um, you know, you've got to get the bounce right. You don't just, you know, throw, throw any old young kids, you know, to the wolves for any old reason, but certainly I was, I was a you know, beneficiary of, of being able to play against, you know, players who um, were a bit older than me, were stronger than me, um, you know, and that really challenged me as, as a young wicketkeeper. And um, I think that was a big reason why, why my skills developed through that period of time was because I was, um, you know, involved with, with those squads for a number of years from that early age. Yeah. But, um, certainly it was a, it, yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty, um, it was a bit of a blueprint, I suppose, for that that pro, you know process of transitioning from a junior club cricketer to a, a junior representative uh, cricketer. And just on your experiences playing with older players, I understand you made your first grade debut as a fifteen-year-old. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I um, at the same time, obviously, when when you're that age, you're playing school cricket and junior club cricket and all that sort of stuff. And um, in, in Queensland grade cricket at the time, we had what was called the Lord Tabner's competition, which was basically an under-16 competition, and it was a, it was a bit of a pathway um, to get junior players from a junior club into a senior club. Yep. Um, so, I, so I joined the, um, the University of Queensland Cricket Club and, and their Lord Tabner's side and was playing in that side from sort of under-13s or 14s onwards. Um, and, yeah, I just re- remember... Um, uh, I think you know we had a we had a it, it's a pretty successful club the University of Queensland a very successful club and um, yeah I remember um, you know I'd been doing pretty well in all my youth cricket but getting an opportunity to play a, a one day game as a 15 year old um, and interestingly we, we actually had Wayne Second who was the, obviously the Queensland wicketkeeper at the time and the, the keeper that um, I would eventually take over from he was at the University of Queensland Cricket Club along with Martin Love and Michael Kaskowitz and Wow. Um, a few other players who, who played in and around the Queensland side, Scott O'Leary and, and um, Steve Farrell. So it was very strong. Jeff Foley, I think, was also in there. So it was a really strong um, 
strong group. And, and, and we actually, the, the game I played, those guys all were playing. So it wasn't a case of just sort of filling in um, because the guys were away. I, I happened to be given an opportunity um, despite the fact that the state players were there. So, again, you know, as I said, in reflection, there, there was opportunities that I was afforded um, to stretch myself. Um, so I was fortunate along the way that the, the various people who were keeping an eye on me were, you know, were, were good enough to give me that opportunity to play, you know, with those guys. Because I think, you know, looking back on my career, the, the, the best way to learn is to be against, is to be with and against the best players in the game and learn from, you know, learn from that experience. And um, yeah, I, I remember um, I, uh, I didn't. Um, I think I batted quite low in the order. I think I, I think I might have come in at ten or eleven and. Um, wasn't in there for very long. I, I didn't get out, but I was in there long enough for the opposition to um, absolutely let me know what uh, cricket was all about. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, it was good fun, and, and as I said, it was a real um, you know learning experience to understand what you know <laughs> for the cliche playing with the big boys was all about. Yeah, yeah, and you eventually do get to play with the big boys. Oh uh, three, oh four, you get the call up to make your Shield debut against South Australia. Can you tell us how you found out you were going to be playing for Queensland? Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd been, by that stage, I'd, I'd been um, been through the Cricket Academy and, and um, after that particular season and playing for the Australian under-19 side, I, I'd got a contract with Queensland um, and I'd been on the, basically uh, in the Queensland side on a contract for a couple of seasons and um, you know, doing my time behind Wade Deckham and, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think must have been, um, it was an Australia A game. I think it might have been, um, possibly down in Hobart and Martin Love and Wade Deckham and obviously the Bulls were a very strong side at that time and, um, you know, quite a few players were involved and, um, yeah, that led, led to, uh, the opportunity and, um, I don't quite recall exactly the, you know, the phone call or whatever, but what I, what I do always remember and I still, Key to this day was um, the first time I walked into the dressing room, um, you know, having been selected uh, to play the game, there was a handwritten note in uh, in my particular area and, and Wade himself had, had just written a little note, you know, from, from one keeper to another, even though obviously I was, um, you know, just filling in for, for his particular spot at that time. He was, um, you know, he was gracious enough and, and, and good enough to leave a little a little note for me just to, um, to wish me luck. And I think that was, Obviously, says a hell of a lot about him as a guy, but also the, the sort of the group that Queensland had. It was very team focused, and yeah. Um, so that was, um, yeah, that was the. I think you know having something like that, you know, when you when you come into a side for the first time, really, um, you know, you, you already feel part of the squad, but the, but the actual playing eleven is something again, and to have those little things and have guys do those sorts of little things um, for you as a youngster really helps you to feel comfortable and, and part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, we had a couple of, you know, uh, legends in Matt Hayden was in my first game, Andrew Simons. And I remember taking my first catch, obviously. And, you know, just the, the way the boys got around you and celebrated with you as if you're part of the furniture, even though you've obviously only been there for, for you know, for, for five minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it's those little touches that I think, you know, great leadership and, and great players make, make the, the young guys. Um, feel part of it. And I, I always remember that. So that was something that stuck with me. And I made sure when I was a, a more senior player that any time guys came into the side, we tried to make them feel as, as if they've, you know, been there forever and that they absolutely deserve their spot. 
Yeah, and the game itself, uh, I think Queensland win by an innings and a fair bit in, in this one. You get 100, Ashley Nofke gets 100 and Andrew Simons gets 100 and, and your 100, you mentioned Matty Hayden there. You're the first person since Matty Hayden to score 100 on debut for Queensland. Can you recall uh, the emotions around that, bringing up that milestone? Yeah, you know, one of the things, you know, that, is, is on the side of any young player is um, there's an element of, of being fearless. You know, you're going into a situation, so obviously there's there's an unknown factor, and there's two ways you can you can kind of take that challenge on. Is is that unknown factor can sort of create fear and actually you get tense and and possibly don't perform how you want to, or you can you can almost see it as a um, you know as, as having freedom because there's no there's no handbrake or there's there's no sort of history that potentially holds you back. So. I remember sort of going into that game and just thinking, well, you know, it, it's not like I'm suddenly, um, you know, the number one keeper. I knew that, you know, more than more than likely it didn't really matter how well I performed that, that Wade was going to be coming back in the side. So for me it was just to go out there and um, I guess try and play with as much freedom as I could. And, and as most players know, the days where you, you do well with the battle ball, you're there the days that you're not thinking too much, you're not trying too hard, you, you just go out and play and, have that freedom, and, and certainly for me, it was that way. I mean, I'm sure there were nerves that there is with any any young players when they make their debut, but um, you know, you try and channel them, you know, in the right way. Yeah. Um, but it, it it was an interesting few days because um, you know, I think we, we we bowled first, and I think that was probably a good thing to to get straight into it and get out and you know catch get out there and catch some balls and, and just get into the game. Um, despite you know the fact that I was probably pretty nervous behind the stumps, just as much as I would have been when I was batting. But um, yeah, it was it was um, it sort of passed by pretty quick. I, it, it, all of a sudden, you know, we were batting, and then I was batting, and then I was scoring some runs. And um, I, I do recall probably you know you met, asked about the emotion. I just remembered it being a whole lot of fun. Yeah, um, always 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 is when you're on the right side of the, the ledger in terms of a, a win or loss, and, and it was obviously a good win for our boys. But um, it's um yeah it was it was a pretty awesome way to, to um you know get into first class cricket and, and see just how fun it could be. Yeah, and you you get to become a regular in that side eventually, and you get the call up for a tour of Pakistan. Now tours of Pakistan uh, are not very common at at this point in time. And uh, can can you reflect on a what it was like going to Pakistan, and b what it was like being pretty close to the action in that Australia A setup. Yeah, it, that was a really interesting, um, you know, probably week, I suppose. I basically, I got a phone call from um, uh, the, the chairman of selectors um, for Queensland who said, look, you've, um, you're going to need to fly over to Pakistan for an Australia A. Um, there's three one-day matches and, and you're going to get fly over because um, there's been an injury. But um, it actually came about an hour or two after I just found out at Queensland Cricket that Wade had actually announced his retirement behind closed doors. So it was a pretty interesting sort of day, I suppose, where in some respects I was thinking, geez, you know, I've obviously got to wait till next summer, but, um, you know, next summer it looks like I'm probably going to be, you know, starting starting behind the stump um, and obviously um, – you know, getting the opportunity to, to play over in, in Pakistan with the Australia Rosal, which had some incredible players in it. Um, but, um, 
you know, basically it was a sort of whirlwind. I was packed and, and um, flew down to, I think it was Melbourne, met some Cricket Australia officials at the airport to, to get, get bits and pieces of gear, um, quickly put that into a bag and, and, and was on a plane. And um, little did I know that there's a period of time where I was flying to Pakistan that there'd actually been a, um, a, uh, a bomb had gone off not too far from the hotel where the Australian side was staying. Um, so, so I arrived at the airport um, and I knew that there'd be security. I'd been to the subcontinent before with Australian under-19 side, so I knew that there'd be plenty of security. But um, I walked off the plane and um, I was greeted by... I've never, I've never seen more security, you know, in one little spot in my life. Wow. And I sort of thought, oh, geez, geez, this seems a lot. Um, uh, the, the manager at the time, he came as well. And basically I was ushered through. I don't even know that I handed over a passport on the way out. There was, it was just, you were basically sort of ushered out the side and, um, got onto the team bus. And, and this is all at about one or two in the morning. Um, and, um, it, as I said, it, it sort of briefed me on the buses where we're heading to the uh, to the hotel, but we would have had, oh, the, the, there was army, there was police just, you know, escorting us back to the hotel, and that actually had a phone hookup while I was on the on the plane um, back with Trinity Australia and the ACA, I think, at the time, and discussed the merits of staying on for those, for that, you know, that last week, those three one-day games of coming home. So my, my Australia A tour could have been even shorter, Oh, wow. um, if the decision was made to come home. But uh, in the end, the guys um, were keen to try and, you know, stay as long as they could and, and do what they could to keep playing the game. And um, But, yeah, obviously, you know, these days, you know, teams aren't travelling over in that, you know, region all that much. But it was it was a great few days. I mean, I was, it, as I said, it was a bit of a whirlwind because, um, you know, got there straight into it. I remember the heat was just, you know, it was unreal. I think it was tougher than, than India in my, my opinion. Wow. Uh, you know, we were playing one day and, and the, the quicks were bowling two or three overs and having to stop. They, you know, that was absolutely cooked. So um, usually, you know, a 50 over stint behind the stumps was a good solid few hours. And I remember, you know, thinking after the first sort of 45 minutes, I thought, geez, I'm feeling the pinch already um, just with how consuming the, the heat was. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a good little tour as well. Again, another another opportunity to understand what, what it takes to play at that level because there was some... Um, exceptional cricketers in that A side trying to force their way into the Australian side at the time and um, even just having that small window um, to, to mix with them to see how they train to play with them was great for a youngster at the start of their career. Yeah, absolutely. And back home, uh, first taste of a Shield final 05-06, one of the more bizarre, well, not bizarre, but one of the more interesting Sheffield Shield finals in terms of the sheer weight of runs that Queensland scored. Now, I, I wanted to clear something up here. Um, this is the game, for those who don't remember, uh, Queensland made six for 900 declared and there was just runs uh, runs flowing aplenty. But I, I've heard a story that the reason that Queensland declared in this game was because the CEO of Queensland Cricket pointed out to Jimmy Ma that there could be a problem if uh, the score got to a thousand. Did you know much behind that? I have heard that story. I um, I can't really say whether it's hundred percent true or not. I mean, in theory, it probably makes sense. But I didn't know the county scoreboard. And, um, you know, upon reflection, yeah, it probably wouldn't have been able to say a thousand. So um, it wouldn't have surprised me if that came up. I mean, especially when you you know when you when you're sitting on the sidelines watching your batsmen plunder runs. 
there's a, there's a fair bit of um, you know joviality, I suppose. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure those types of um, things probably popped up, but uh, yeah, it was that was um, you know quite incredible. I know that a lot of people there was um, some commentary around the idea that it was paid back because a couple of seasons prior to that, the Victorians had done a similar thing to us down at the MCG, where I think they made might have made sort of six or seven hundred. Yeah, um, you know, and and beating us down there, and that this was some sort of payback. And look, who knows? Maybe there was an element of that for some of the more senior players. <laughs> like for me, it was, it was just a thrill to be there. But as anyone who knows, you know, Test cricket and Shield cricket, it's it's about outlasting your opposition, and and that's not just you know in terms of sustained execution and skills, but it's also physically. And um, you know, in the end, I mean, nine hundred was obviously always going to be too many, but a lot of that was about actually. Keeping their team out in the hard, you know, hard sun on a on a road, and and, and really driving, um, driving it into them, and really trying to, I guess, break their spirit. You know, yeah. anyone anyone who's played the game knows how hard it is to bat. You know, that you, you realise you're out of the game, and you've just got to try and find a way to to survive it. And you're exhausted, and you know, so you only need that small lapse in concentration to to make the mistake. And when you the more tired they were, and um, the more ground in ground down they were that the, the easier it would be for us so that, that was certainly a big part of it but um, I always look back on it and think you know I think I jokingly sort of said that there was four guys who made hundreds and I think I finished three not out so I made <laughs> one three one three hundredth of our total <laughs> but um, I used to, used to joke that maybe there was a fifth hundred that went begging but probably not so much I um, I was lucky enough to get a few catches behind the stumps and, and, and obviously be part of that um, you know my first shield winning side yeah, Shield finals mean a lot. And I'll play a bit of audio a bit later when we, we talk about the other Shield final that you won, just what it meant to Ryan Harris to win a Sheffield Shield. A um, 100 consecutive Shield games. Uh, that's incredible. Um, you just talked about endurance there um, in that Shield final. Um, do, do you pay much attention to the numbers? I know I know players sort of say they don't they don't look at the numbers and it's kind of something you reflect on after the fact. Um, what did it mean to you to, to have the endurance to back up for a hundred consecutive Sheffield Shield games? Yeah, I think all cricketers do keep an eye on the numbers and, and probably um, more so than you, you, you need to. I think, you know, that's one of the things that you, as you get wiser, you realise that, um, you know, performances, the numbers will take care of themselves if you're just out there playing the game. But, um, that was one particular, I suppose, statistic that was brought to my attention. I had no idea about that particular, um, you know, that particular statistic. And a, a journalist contacted contacted me through the media manager and asked to do a story and said, "Look, you're playing a hundred hundred game in a row." And I, I have to admit that, um, as I said, it wasn't something that was on my radar. But once I sort of thought about it, it was actually um, one that I took quite a lot of pride in. I mean, any wicketkeeper. Um, you know, it takes a lot of pride in their fitness and, and then their preparation and making sure that, you know, they can go the distance as part of the role of the keeper is, is to, to be able to do that for the side and to, um, you know, to, to lead the performance in the field and do that. And um, so fitness is a huge, huge part of that. And, and obviously to be able to keep your performance at a high enough level to, to maintain selection and those sort of things. But, um, yeah, as I said, wasn't something on my radar. But when I found out, I was, I was pretty chuffed with that one because it's, I guess reflective of all the hard work he's put in, but um, you know, the great white grout. He said, "Never give a, a sucker an even break with the, the wicket keepers," <laughs> and um, you know that, that's the thing. You never you never know with with how it's going to pan out. So 
whether you've got one game, 10 games or 100 games, you, you've got to make the most of it. And, um, you know, those types of things, I certainly was always aware of just how, um, you know, lucky, um, you know, I was to be able to play the game as long as I did. Yeah, yeah, and 500 catches, uh, that milestone, there was a fair bit of talk around that one. Darren Berry, uh, prolific wicketkeeper in domestic Australian cricket, uh, one, of the, one of the best we've seen domestically. Uh, to get that 500th catch, uh, I think it was George Bailey down the leg side, actually. Um, talk us through what something like that means. It's another number I know, but uh, a pretty big one. Oh, definitely, and that that was one that, that obviously would have been more on the radar. I think, um, you know, once you start to get to, to, to get to those sort of high numbers, you realise that you're up at that sort of upper echelon in terms of, um, you know, those dismissals tallies. And, and Chuck Berry was was one of the you know one of the best behind the stumps, and and I was lucky I got to play against him in in, um, in a couple of my early games in, in that particular. Uh, Shield final, the MCG I mentioned, that was a that was a good one, and he, he didn't miss me. But um, <laughs> it was a really good it, it was a really good thing though because I, I remember um, you know I had the had the hundred on debut, then my next game I played against New South Wales and got a duck, um, and then in the first innings of that Shield final, that so was my third game, I got another duck. So I was coming out, you know, in the second innings we were getting stumped, and I was looking looking down the barrel of three ducks in a row and a pair in the final and. Um, you know, they were obviously coming hard for more directions, but I remember Chucky going pretty good, and, and it, it was really a good test for me. I hung around and got a few runs at the end, but um, got a great chance to talk to him after the game as well, and that's what I think was great, was, you know, you played the game so hard out there, and, and um, you know, as, as if everything depended on it, but off the field, you know, it was good enough to come up and, and talk keeping and all that stuff, and, you know, I maintained a, a relationship with him over my period of time, because, you know, Wicket keepers. Not everyone. Not everyone gets a chance to go behind a stump. So it's it's an art that not everyone understands. So as a little, I guess, fraternity, we, we sort of keep close quarters. And um, you know, any any time you get a chance to talk to, to people who um, have done it and done it to that level, is a great opportunity. But um, yeah, look, it, it it's it's similar, I suppose, to, to probably what he would say is that um, you know you. It's reflective, I suppose, of, of your talent and your performance and your ability to maintain that over a long period of time. But I'm sure, <laughs> probably similar to him, it's um, it was always the, the, the catches that you missed that probably you remembered more than the ones that you actually took. Yeah. So um, yeah, ho- hopefully it was more often taking the catch than not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And now, 2009, you're over playing. I think it was for Chorley Cricket Club over there. You're playing during the. 2009 Ashes and Haddon gets an injury, Manu comes into the team, then Manu gets injured. Uh, talk us through how close you were to possibly uh, making your way into that Australian team in 2009. Yeah, I, I'd made the decision that I wanted to get back over to England and, and play um, a bit more a bit more cricket in the winter and work on a few things and it, 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 I hadn't actually – when I, when I actually had made contact with um, the club over there, that was quite a bit before I sort of realised that there was an active series. Um, so I was always, always going to be going over, but I had a pretty good summer um, before that, and I thought I might have been a chance to sneak into to the CA contract list and, um, you know, see how we go. In, in the end, um, obviously, um, uh, Graham Manu went, and, and he was a very good player as well, and 
Um, so I guess that it, part of me was a little bit, you know, there was, I thought, hey, I'm starting to get close. I'm, I'm starting to get some consistent performances on the board from Queensland. This might be an opportunity, but it didn't, it didn't happen. Um, told us that I went over to England and, and my, my real focus there was, um, I, I wanted to basically work on a few things with my batting, but put myself in a situation, I suppose, where, um, you know, I had to take a lot of responsibility as, as the, the, the club pros have to <laughs> when yeah. they go over to England and, you know, you're always expected to score runs. And I wanted to try and challenge my batting before I came back to Queensland where I was, you know, needed more responsibility rather than just being someone who sort of chipped in with the bat. And so that was why I was over there. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, I was having a great summer and enjoying it. And um, I'd actually been to a couple of the tests as well with a few of the other boys who were playing in different leagues. So it was a, it was a really, really good uh, English summer. And um, I actually I actually was on a... Uh, a, a um, bit of a road trip with a fellow Queensland bull, Ryan Broad. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, Winner Manly. And we just correct, yeah. And we just um, we just started our road trip. He was playing somewhere up north near Manchester as well. Um, we'd driven down to, to London and then headed across uh, to Wales. And we we actually um, we actually had a pretty good first night out. And um, I woke up the next morning and um, you know had about five missed calls on my phone from a number I didn't know. And you know at that time I. You know, no one was ringing me for any reason. So <laughs> I rang, rang it back, and uh, and it was Steve Bernard who said, um, you know, mate, we've uh, we've had a couple of injuries, and we've got a tour match here. Um, we know you're over here. Would you you had to come and play? And um, you know, you're certainly not going to say no. But I had to work out the logistics in my head because I was in in Wales, and I thought I've got to somehow. Well, number one, I've got to wake up my roommate here, <laughs> telling that <laughs> telling that road road trips abandoned and then I got to drive from Wales up to um Steve had actually said oh what time can you we're over in Canterbury what time can you can you get to the hotel I said oh look um look to be honest I've got a couple of things to do today um <laughs> is it okay if I get get there get there uh, in the evening and he said yeah that's fine we're, we're it's a it's a few days out before the game so um yeah no dramas just give us a buzz when you get in I said yeah no worries and, so that was when I thought, okay, well, the, the clock's now ticking. So, yeah, wake up, wake up, Brody, who um, would probably have preferred to stay in bed. I said, look, mate, we've, um, we've actually got to drive back up north about, what, six, six or eight hours, whatever it was, back up to Manchester, um, pick up all my gear, and then I was going to get in my car and head back down and drive all the way back down again. So oh. I sort of um, <laughs> saw a fair, fair chunk of, uh, of, of England in the, in the one day there. Um, well, certainly their road system anyway, but... Um, yeah, so got got to the team hotel and 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 met the met, met the rest of the guys and had a couple of days um, training with the with the squad before the um, before the tour match itself. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of your question of how close you got, it was it was quite fortuitous really that those events played out they, the way they did. And and Brad hadn't obviously damaged his finger, but it wasn't anything too bad. Um, he obviously obviously bad enough that he missed that particular test. Um, but it was certainly never going to, you know, be something that dragged on for too long. So um, it, it's probably it's probably an interesting little um, example, I suppose, of with wicket keepers. You, you, you're never actually that far away, but you also, you know, you, you might not actually be as close as you think either. It's um, it's it's, a, it's an interesting one for the keepers, as they, you know, as they say, you can be the the fifth best batsman at a club and you're still playing first grade, but you can be the fifth best keeper and you're you're playing down the grade. So it's it's just a lot of the wicket keeper. That's the role that it is. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you, you come back to Australia, you have, have some success uh, with Queensland. Uh, the game in particular that stands out for me is that 2011-12 Shield final. You guys are in a bit of trouble in that game and you, you help get Queensland out of trouble. I'm just going to play a bit of audio here from Ryan Harris. This is just some of his reflections on that Shield final and how much it meant to him. And then I'll ask you your, your reflections on it as well. This one, this one, yeah, this one was just amazing, and and I was, I actually, I actually, I had tears in my eyes at the end of it because it was just something. Was it that was a, like I said, it was a like getting the bag of green. It was just a, a dream come true to be able to hold that beautiful trophy, the ship, the shield, you know, to hold it and say that I'd won it and won it with um, again with with, with Bush coaching. Um, yeah. Another 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 sort of tale uh, in, in my cricketing career and life with him and. Um, and to win it with such a great group, great bunch of guys, uh, it was amazing. And obviously, as you said, the way we won it with, with Steve McGoffin batting like he did, and, and then Chris Hartley was was just phenomenal. So phenomenal. Uh, talk us through it. Uh, got got the boys out of trouble and uh, made runs in the biggest game of the season. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know. It, it's funny. I'd actually um, he mentioned Bush there, and, and I really enjoyed playing under his coaching. And um, I, I'd, I'd actually been batting really, really well that season, but just not really scoring runs, particularly in the second half of the season. So I was a little bit frustrated because I was either finding ways to get out and, and everything. I was doing all the right things, but just really not getting, I suppose, the big result that you were wanting. And I, I remember Bush just pulling me aside one day and said, "Mate." You know, you're doing all the right things. It's, it's going to come eventually, so just keep doing it. And you know, it's just a quiet word like that that, that allows a player to, to, I suppose, you know, keep their confidence and keep going. And um, for me, it did sort of come together in that final. But um, yeah, we were in a little bit of trouble, obviously, in that first inning um, on a wicket, a wicket that wasn't wasn't too bad, but it was probably the mix with the overhead conditions for the majority of the game. I think that's the thing. Everyone just assumes that the gather that. Um, you know, it's, it's a fast bowler's paradise, and certainly there's certainly there's a bit in it for the quicks in terms of the pace and bounce and occasional a bit of bit of green stuff underfoot. But um, it's more so when you get the overhead conditions as well that it can get really tricky. And um, so that was a low scoring final, but a really exciting one. And I think the quality of the cricket was just fantastic. That's my best memory from it. I mean, I said before that it's always better when you come out on the right side <laughs> of it. Um, but I, I just remembered. I just remembered how good a game it was. You know, it just swung back and forth so many times. And um, I know for me personally, batting in that particular situation, it um, it was a it was a situation I sort of got a lot in my career, and I really enjoyed it when we you know had your had your backs to the wall and had to kind of come up with something for the team. I, I think I usually found a bit for whatever reason in, in those scenarios and. Um, in some respects, I, I found a way to play with a bit more freedom in the mind. Because you, you almost—it sounds funny to say it—but you almost sort of think, "Well, the batsmen haven't done their their job per se. Um, mm-hmm. So whatever I can, whatever I can sort of master up here through the middle order and with the tail, you know, it's going to be a bit of a bonus. And um, you know, our biggest, our biggest, um, I guess, goal in that first inning was just trying to bridge the gap with with the Tassie first innings total because. You know, that, that's the key. You don't want to knock yourself out of the game in, you know, in that early stage. So, um, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, as I said, it was just a great game because it just seesawed back and forth. And a lot of the time in cricket, those low scoring games can be, um, the, the ones that are really enjoyable both to, to play and to watch. But, um, you know, it was, 
yeah, it was, there was a lot of really good performances in that game. Like, you know, Alistair McDermott took some wickets yeah. for us. James Hopes was ex- excellent with the ball and scored a, a really crucial um, half century as well in that first innings. And, um, you know, it was um, it was a really, really good game of cricket. But um, I think I enjoyed that one for different reasons to the first one, obviously, because this one I was a more senior player and, and had more responsibility to to contribute, you know, performance-wise, which, which I, I was able to. So, um, yeah, as, as Ryan said, it, um, it's a pretty rare thing to, to be able to, to win a shield. I know Victoria in recent years have been, um, you know, they've been lucky enough to be able to get their hands on it quite a few times. But many players can go through a career without getting the, the chance to hold the Sheffield Shield. And um, any time you do it, uh, it's very special. Yeah, absolutely. We had Jamie Siddons on uh, recently and he lifted the shield twice in a 16-year career and um, yep. that's that's probably, as you say, that's two more than a lot of people uh, lift the shield. So um, moving into Big Bash, uh, exciting time in Australian cricket and, and you're playing uh, when it's all kind of evolving, uh, starting out at the Brisbane Heat and then later at the Sydney Thunder. Can you Tell us about your BBL experience and maybe compare the two titles. You, you, you win BBL 02 at the Heat and BBL 05 at the Thunder. Um, your reflections on those? Yeah, I mean, BBL for me, it, you know, I'd be the first to say that, you know, T20 cricket wasn't necessarily my strongest format where I was able to, to contribute as much. But what I really enjoyed about the format was, um, where, where I was able to bring my leadership and, and, and what you're seeing on the field and, and the tactics and strategy and being able to contribute that way. Obviously, um, you know, you're still contributing with, with um, you know, the bat and the gloves, but um, I really enjoyed, I guess, the, the, the requirement to, in some respects, you know, you've got so much less time to, to kind of work through it decision or work through a strategy so it's, it's really quite snappy with your decision making and um, that's a really fun thing to do and um, I, I suppose comparing the, the two sides that I played with in, in terms of winning the big bash um, our Brisbane Heat side we, we certainly you know we, we had a very um, up and down campaign that um, you know we only just snuck into the finals um, yeah. most of it was on the back of um, Luke Commersback, who was having a very good season for us and scoring a lot of runs. And it was very typical of, a, I guess, a Queensland-based or a Brisbane-based side is that sort of almost underdog thing back to the wall, wall and finding a way to win games and, and that sort of style, I guess, of play. Yeah. Um, and we, we managed to do that. And, um, you know, even even right down to the final over in Perth, you know, WA is a very difficult place to go and play. They've got a pretty hostile crowd. And, um, you know, at the time, they had a very good side as well. And, we were able to go over there and, and, and again, you know, managed to, to scrap our way um, to a win. And, and I was lucky in that final. Um, unfortunately, our, our skipper, James Hopes, had injured himself in the semi. So I, I took over the captaincy in that semi-final and then in the final and, and um, really, as I said, really enjoyed the, um, you know, the, the challenge of um, being out there under under the pressure of, you know, obviously must-win games, but also, um, you know, the, the, the lack of... The, the time that you've got to make decisions, you've got to be got to be really sharp and be really clear on what you're trying to do. So that was a lot of fun, and um, yeah, con- contrasting that with the Sydney Thunder. By that stage, I, I sort of was wanting something just to sort of freshen up my cricket, and 
um, while I probably never imagined myself playing anywhere outside of the state of Queensland, <laughs> um, you know, that's one of the great things that T20 Cricket and Big Bash has done is players are able to, to move around a lot more and, um, you know, broaden their experience both playing-wise but also with the people that they're around. I know for me, what I really loved was going to, to a, another group that seemed so different from from where I was, but then you get in amongst it and you learn, oh, you know, this is the way they do things. Yep, we do that in Queensland, but hey, they do, they do these things differently as well. So really learning about the um, similarities and the differences. But that particular campaign was really fun because the, the, the Sydney Thunder squad that we had for, for the couple of years I was there was, was a really um, – it was put together very strategically by, by obviously – um, superstar Mike Hussey, but the general manager at the time, Nick Cummins as well, they were very and, and the coach Paddy Upton, yeah. very strategic about the players that they um, uh, that they I, I guess almost handpicked. Um, I know from from my from my particular um, personal spot, Mike had sort of said to me, "Look, we one of the things we want." He said, "I'm not worried. You, you're not. You, we're not bringing you here to score any runs. We know you'll do the job behind the stumps, but we want someone who knows how to win games." Yeah. Um, who knows how to play in, in pressure situations and, and win in situations where um, it seems like it's unwinnable. And, and they sort of, it was almost like each player or each position, they sort of had a, a bit of a criteria for what they wanted to bring to the, to the group. And they sort of, you know, put, put a group together. And ultimately in that um, BBLO 6, we were able to, um, you know, go all the way. And again, had some very good standout individual performances. Um, you know, that was the season Trey Ruff sort of made his name, I guess, yeah. in the in the big bash. And, and, you know, when you've got guys like Mike Huskin, Jacques Callis in the side, you, um, you know, there's plenty of talent there. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, that was great fun too, as I said, particularly to, to go and experience, um, you know, a different way of doing things at that point in time in my career. It was a really enjoyable thing to, to freshen up the mind. Yeah, absolutely. And transitioning out of cricket, how's that been for you? Uh, getting, uh, spending so much of your your time and energy to become a professional cricketer. Um, how how are things tracking now? And and how's that transition been out of cricket into the next stage of life? Yeah, I, I um, it, it was quite interesting. Uh, you know, players talk about it for different reasons. I certainly think the transition was difficult. Um, for me, it was that the reasons, I suppose, were, were different to what I expected. Um, I was lucky we had our first child um, just, just after I'd retired. So I was lucky in that regard that I, I had something to, to put all my focus and energy into um, straight away. But um, what I probably found challenging was, was not so much, um, you know, missing the game as such because um, I think – I think part of the reason I retired was because I still felt like that I sort of expended everything I had. Um, yeah. But it was probably just some, some of the other things that cricket brought that I didn't realise, um, you know, was such a big part of who I was. So, you know, the, the competition that cricket brings, um, you know, the elements of the camaraderie, um, being part of, I, I guess, of a group everywhere, everyone's moving in the same direction, little things like that that, um, you know, you don't always have in the, in the group's you know, you, you work with um, outside of professional sport. You know, some places do, but um, yeah, it was it was challenging for different reasons. I, I, I probably, um, as I said, it, it wasn't wasn't some of the the things that most guys sort of talk about. But I think that's the that's the challenge of transitioning. Is it's unique for everyone, and, and you, I guess, you've got to go into it um, 
open-minded and, and expecting, um, you know, expecting there to be at least something that, that makes it a little bit, bit challenging. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, and then, but ultimately, you know, you speak to most people and they, they, they find a, find a path. And ultimately I would, I'd like to get back to, to, um, you know, the game of cricket right now. I'm, I'm working in marketing and communications in the retail industry, but, um, you know, I've certainly got, the, the passion for sport is huge and, and certainly for cricket. So, um, I wanted to get away for a little bit just to, um, you know, taste, taste a different industry, taste a different, environment but um certainly the passion is there to, to one day get back to sport and, and get back to cricket yeah absolutely yeah i think i think once you've got cricket in the blood it seems to be the case uh for lots of the people we talk to on the podcast it's just just stays ingrained and cricket will always be there somewhere uh for for, for the the, the diehards i suppose and now um we wrap things up with uh, a question that's very popular with our listeners and love to know your response to this. If, if you could pick a dream net session with three people, they don't have to be cricketers. They can be from any, any walk of life. They could be, um, they could be celebrities. They could be other athletes, whoever you like, uh, living or dead. Who, who would you love to have at your dream net session? <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, I think given how big a cricket nasty I am uh, and was, I probably would stay in the cricket or sporting realm. Okay. Um, you know, as much as I, you know, you, you could pick any number of celebrities, but I'd probably, you know, I wouldn't spend too much time worrying about the cricket. So if we're actually having a net session, I've probably got to go with, you know, stick with the cricket. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love I reckon, it. I reckon first one, the one that popped up for me was... I, I'd want the king there. I'd want Shane Warne there. Yeah. Um, I was lucky. I was lucky enough to play against him a couple of times, um, and he was just amazing to face. You know, from a batting perspective, I'd love, I'd love to to get him to come in and, and have a bowl. Um, and I'd actually, I wouldn't bother batting. I'd get him behind the stumps and have a keep to him because um, it's obviously something I didn't get to experience in my career. But I think that'd be pretty amazing to. Um, to see the way he operates from behind the stumps, I'd love 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 the opportunity to do that. Um, so I'll go with the king for one. Um, I reckon I was always interested. I was always really interested in in um, I guess batting and the mechanics and the mindset and just everything that goes into it. And um, you know, probably to the detriment at times in my career, and probably over over things at times, but. Always, always really interested in that side of it. So I reckon for the other two, I'd probably go with I'd go with someone who's obviously a master of batting. So I reckon I'm going to go with Ricky Ponting. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, arguably the best since Bradman um, that we've had, and, and an absolute genius. So I'd go with him because I'd love to pick his brains. I, I did get a chance to talk to him a little bit about cricket um, on that 09 Ashes uh, weekend that I was there, but also at various times throughout my career and. Always love listening to his insights, it's similar with his commentary, and I think to get a chance to talk talk batting properly with him would be pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and I'll go a little bit left field on my last one. I'll go, but in a similar vein, I'd go with probably a maybe some sort of major league baseballer, um, maybe like a Derek Jeter or something. Okay. Um, for similar for, for similar reasons, maybe just to. Maybe just to try and understand their mindset and the, the way they operate about seeing the ball out of a out of a hand with a pitch, see if there's you know what the similarities are, what the differences are. Obviously, 
slightly different game, um, but a few similarities as well. So maybe interesting to see if there was anything that they do or, or um, any techniques, any mindsets, things like that that, that could possibly um, you know, be, be paralleled into the game of cricket. Perhaps that might be interesting as well. Yeah, well, Derek, if you're listening, I'm not sure if you do tune into the Cricket Library podcast, but uh, <laughs> get in touch. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. That would be outstanding. Well, That would be pretty cool. It, it would be very cool. Uh, it's It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Chris. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your insights with our listeners and um, – just open up the window in, into the world of what it's like playing at the elite level for such a long period of time. And we wish you all the best with the future and hope to one day again see you back around in cricket circles uh, giving back to the game. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. And it's always always nice to chat and reflect upon it. But, um, you know, like anyone, if you're a cricket nut, you love listening to the podcast and hearing everyone's stories and sharing them. So, Thanks for, uh, for giving me the chance to share mine. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Matt. A massive thanks to Chris Hartley for joining me on the Cricket Library podcast. So good chatting to a fellow cricket nuffy and not just a cricket nuffy, a cricket nuffy who had elite level skills and executed those skills to precision for the Queensland Bulls, the Sydney Thunder, the Brisbane Heat, uh, an excellent first-class domestic career and one of the best glovemen we have seen in the modern era and fantastic to hear his insights on the game and what it was like to be a part of it all throughout his distinguished time in all of those places that we just mentioned and uh, some great net session selections. Warney, he's a popular, he's a popular fit. So Warney, you are going to be a busy man if we ever get these net sessions off the ground. Punter will be probably equally as busy. But Derek Jeter, what a great left field shout that one is. Major League Baseball and getting those insights uh, in in that net session there, Derek. At Cricket Library is our Twitter handle. Get in touch. We'd love to see you at the Nets. And we'd love to see you, our listeners, back for the next edition of the show. We've got Will Somerville coming up. And that is a very worthwhile listen. A magnificent story, the Will Somerville story. And we'll get to hear it around this time next week on the Cricket Library podcast. But it's time for me to bid you all farewell. Before I go, I need to remind you to subscribe. I need to remind you to like and to share and to do all the things on your social networks that will get the word out there about the Cricket Library podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. This has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library podcast. Bye for now.